Uh, I want to tell you, I appreciate all of the emails that I've gotten since uh, a couple of weeks ago when I asked us to be a church of testimony, and y'all took me seriously and been telling people about Jesus. I said, we're going to get on everybody in the region's nerves, but people are going to get saved. So I appreciate you. If we have not met before, my name is Judah. I hang out with the young adults here at Bridgeway. So if you're between the ages of 18 and 25 and we haven't connected yet, today is our day. I will be in the lobby right after this service. I would love to connect with those of you that are 18 to 25. Now listen, I am the oldest of five in my house, the oldest and more importantly, the favorite. Uh, I tell my other siblings, I say, you know, mama don't even really like y'all, right? And in my house, the rule was that the oldest child had the responsibility of doing after dinner dishes. So I spent a lot of time in my house doing dishes, but I also had the luxury of watching each of my siblings finally get old enough to be bestowed the task of after-dinner dishes. And I remember when my youngest brother, Jacob, uh, got old enough to have to do the dishes, and he was fine with it that first night. But that next night when there were dishes in the sink again, he was furious because he didn't understand that it wasn't a one-time thing, that there was always going to be new dirty dishes in the sink. I told him, I said, if you have a hard time with recurring dirty dishes, you're really going to struggle with recurring bills. But I think that this is, this is similar to our walk with Jesus, to our sanctification process. The struggle of it never being done. God is always teaching us something new and stretching us into something more and growing us in one area or another, pushing us further. And this is, this is really cool as a thought, but in real life it's hard. And this idea of an ongoing, ever-evolving relationship with God and the struggles of that is exactly what the children of Israel are going through in the book of Exodus. And last week, Pastor Matt talked to us about the reality that the children of Israel have been through this miraculous, this wonderful, awe-inspiring experience with God where he has, he has brought them out and brought them up and brought them through. And this was incredible. But three months have gone by since they walked out of Egypt, and while they are free from Egypt, they are not free from themselves. My mother once said to me, she said, anywhere you go, you take you with you. There's a, a, a great quote ascribed to the incredible abolitionist Harriet Tubman. She said, I freed a thousand slaves, and I would have freed a thousand more if only they had known they were slaves. And God didn't just have to free Israel from Egypt, from the physical bondage, but he had to free them from the bondage of the mind. And so while Egypt, Israel had walked out of Egypt, they walked out with themselves. And they walked out of, out of slavery, but they walked into homelessness. You know, it's a difficult thing to reconcile our experience with what we prayed for versus what we thought it would be. We thought the thing that we prayed for would feel one way, would look one way, but our actual experience of it is often different than we imagined because you prayed for that spouse that's getting on your nerves, didn't you? 
and you pray for that child that's wayward and disrespectful, and you pray for that job that's stressing you out, and you prayed for that house that you keep having to put money into, and it is a difficult thing to reconcile what we thought it was going to feel like and what it actually feels like, and sometimes our experience is inconsistent. But you know, the truth is you can be right in the middle of blessing, right in the middle of miracle, and it still be hard. And so the children of Israel are free, but they're homeless. They are free, but, but they're confused. They're free, but they're conflicted. They're free, but they're concerned about food and water. They're free, but they're frustrated, and they are asking the basic question, who am I? Who am I? I found that this is a universal question. That it doesn't matter who you are, at some point and probably at multiple points, you're going to ask this question, who am I? At my previous church, I, I was a senior pastor, and I, I, I stepped into that position a little too young. They, I was 22. They were crazy letting me step in it. But anyway, uh, so when I, when I stepped into the position, I realized that I was younger than 90% of the congregation. I said, how, how are any of these people going to follow me? I'm, I'm a kid. So I, I, I made a game plan. I said, I'm going to find the oldest person in this church, and we're going to become the best of friends. And so I identified a man in the congregation by the name of Bill, and Bill was about as old as dirt is itself. I said, Bill, we're going to be friends. He said, okay. And so we, we started hanging out. I would go to his house every week after church, and, and we would just talk. We'd just talk for hours. And, and Bill and I were as opposite as opposites could be, but we became good friends. And one of the things that I remember being surprised about in my relationship with Bill was that he, at his seasoned age, was still asking the question, who am I? And asking it in relationship to the season that he was in. Who am I as a retired man? Who am I as somebody who's caring for an ailing spouse? Who am I? I find that it is a universal question. And the children of Israel are asking, who am I? I, I knew who I was as a slave. But I, who am I as a free person? Who am I outside of being a slave? Today, that, that question might sound more like, who am I without my trauma? Yeah, because see, some, some, of us, some of us don't know how to be without our trauma. It's been a part of us for so long and so consistent in our lives that we might actually reject freedom because we don't know how to be free. We don't know how to be without our trauma. You know, in order to really get free, you actually have to leave the shackles behind. God will unlock them for you, but you actually have to walk away. And that may mean figuring out what are my risks good for if not holding chains. I'll remind you that Pastor Brian talked to us about in the first uh, message in this series. He told us that Israel was not just being free from something, but being free for something. God is not just in the business of removing chains. He's in the business of repurposing our wrists. And so essentially, the children of Israel are asking through their behavior. They're asking, who are we? And today we're going to unpack God's answer to that question. God's answer to that question is a simple one. It is one word. The children of Israel are asking, who are we? God simply says, mine. God says, your identity 
is that you belong to me. Before you are anything else, you are mine. And God shows them who they are, watch this, by showing them who they're not. By giving them boundaries, by giving them the behaviors that are not in alignment with who he's created them to be. And he gives them the Ten Commandments, or more literally translated, the Ten Words, the, the Decalogue. Now, I don't know anybody who wakes up on a Sunday morning and gets excited about a message on the Ten Commandments. And I think this is in part because it's just, it's hard to get excited about rules, isn't it? I, I don't care who you are, I've, I found, I've been all over the world, found that people, black folks, white folks, rich folks, poor folks, people struggle with rules because rules don't always feel good. I imagine that the first century Jewish people would probably laugh at us with the way that we struggle with just 10 commandments when altogether they had some 600 plus laws that they were trying to find. But, but literally, rules give us a hard time. And it's odd that they do because every culture of every people everywhere have always used rules to build sustainable lives. Rules and boundaries shape identity. You have to hold my hand, little boy, when we cross this street because you are my child. The rule tells you who you are. Rules and boundaries establish relationships. I don't call my grandmother by her first name as a boundary that speaks to the relationship that we have that is different from every other relationship that I have. And rules and boundaries show love because they provide safety. And God gave every single thing that he made, he gave it a rule or a boundary, even to the sun. He said, you may shine in the sky for this long and no longer. To the ocean, he said, you may come this far and no further. And the boundaries that he placed on, on everything that he made and called good show us how much he cares for us and loves us. God loved the Israelites enough to free them, but also to give them boundaries because, and this is your fill in the blank if you're following with us online or on the app or just taking notes, freedom is best served with organization. Freedom is best served with organization. And what's so important to understand about these next few chapters in Exodus is that God didn't just give the people of Israel a set of rules. He gave them a covenant. A covenant is a, a relationship, a chosen relationship in which the two parties make binding promises to one another. And covenants have elements that are conditional and some elements that are unconditional. And covenants often can sound a lot like contracts, but covenants take it a step further in that covenants have to be grounded in a relationship that you both enter into. We don't have to be in a relationship for us to sign a contract, but we do have to be in a relationship in order to be in a covenant. And so God gives Israel this promise of a personal relationship, and he talks to them about who he promises to be in that relationship. And then God calls Israel and us today to enter into that relationship, to enter into that covenant, and he tells us how we're supposed to be in that relationship. Now, I'm going to assume that you're at least somewhat familiar with the Ten Commandments. Some of you can probably name them verbatim, the King James Version. Y'all are the real saints going to heaven. We're glad for you. 
But it's important to, to understand that this is not about memorizing rules. It's not even about having a perfect understanding of them. Our, our goal this morning is not just to remind ourselves of what they say or, or to understand them individually and as a whole, but rather what I want us to do is as we go through these Ten Commandments, there are a couple of questions that I want you to be asking of these commandments. Uh, I'd love for you to write them down if you have something to write with. I got four questions that I want you to be thinking about over the next 20 or so minutes. Question number one. How are these commandments establishing Israel's identity? How are these commandments establishing Israel's identity? Question number two, who do these commandments protect? Who do these commandments protect? Question number three, how do they show love? How do these commandments show love? Question number four, what do they show us about God? And I want you to be thinking about these questions as we go through them all and as we uh, attempt to unpack and interpret and apply these commandments to our lives because they do have relevance to our lives today. As we do this, I want you to understand that God gives specific boundaries to each of us. And some of those boundaries are tied exclusively to what he's doing in your life. And so when that happens and when you're experiencing some of the boundaries that God sets and they're hard and they don't make no sense and they're, 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 they're difficult to lean into, you can lean into them fully knowing that they speak to who God is, to how he is, to who we are, to how much he loves us and to the covenant relationship that we're in with him. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 today. If you'll go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles, in the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, it is page 60, uh, Exodus chapter 19. I'll be in the ESV version. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 19, it has taken the Israelites 400 years and three months of trusting God to get to this moment. They have seen God's deliverance from Egypt. They have received his guidance along the way. They saw his victory at the Red Sea. They, they saw his victory over the Amalekites. They received his miraculous gift of food and water. And in Exodus chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, it says this, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God says to them, You have seen how I operate in relationship with you. You have seen that I am, as the songwriter wrote, the way maker, the promise keeper, the miracle worker, the light in the darkness. God says, you've seen me be this. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, God says, this is your part of the covenant, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God says, this is who you are, Israel. This is your identity. 
this is your name. Out of all the things that I made and that belong to me, you are to be my treasure. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And if you skip down to verse 8, it says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken to me, uh, all the Lord that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So the children of Israel agree to this covenant. They agree. They decide they're going to enter in. And, and the thing that's important to note is that in order to accept the promises of God, to receive all of the gifts and all of the perks and all of the benefits of being a child of God, you have to uh, enter covenant with God. You have to enter relationship with God. In order to receive the blessing of God, you have to accept the fatherhood of God. And if you're going to accept the fatherhood of God, that means you're accepting the authority of God and therefore the boundaries of God. And too often, too often people want one without the other. Too often, we only want to accept the blessings of God, and we miss that the blessing of God is housed in the boundaries that he sets. So the children of Israel, they agree to enter into this covenant. Moses comes back to the Lord and says, God, the people, they have agreed to enter into the covenant. God says to Moses, good, now tell them to get ready. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So God, God tells them, he tells the people to consecrate and wait, to prepare and wait. Do you want to know what you should be doing, believer, between hearing the promise of God and receiving the promise of God? It's right here in the text. You are to prepare and wait. God tells them to wash, and then he gives them some boundaries. He says, don't go into the mountain. In fact, he says, don't even touch it. And then things get a little tough because he says to them, he tells the men during this consecration period, he says, don't even sleep with your wives. Now, wait a minute, Lord. That's my wife. I, I, I am without a home right now. I am without my culture right now. We're wandering through the desert, hungry, trying to figure out life, and I can't even be with my wife. Why? And there are a lot of really profound commentaries that kind of try to unpack why the Lord might have called the men to a season of abstinence, to a period of abstinence. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter why, because God said it. And God, God may have some boundaries for you, some, some waiting for you that doesn't make sense to you, that's hard to wrap your mind around, that, that, that's painful to lean into. But ultimately, if God said it, you ought to do it, not because you understand the why, but because you understand the who. God already began this conversation with them by reminding them of the who. He said, you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. You know who I am, and because it is I who am saying it, you ought to do it. He says, rate and get ready. Wait and get ready. I think the number one challenge of, of Christianity is that so much of it is a whole lot of waiting and getting ready. 
a whole lot of waiting and getting ready. And in a, in a world of instant gratification, the, the pathway of patience and preparation is hard. I went paragliding in Rio de Janeiro uh, last week in Brazil. Oh, I had a good time. It was so, so much fun. And, and I, I, I paid for it, and then, you know, they said, you got to get there early. So I got there early, and I went, and they, we did the little training course, and I, I, they got me all strapped up, and I was ready. And they take you up on this mountain, and you have to wait on, on, on the mountain until it's your turn. And so I was excited, and I'm up there, and I'm strapped in. And then the Association of Paragliding shuts down the platform. They say nobody can take off from this platform because the winds aren't doing what they're supposed to do for us to take off off safely. And I was fine. They said, we just wait a little bit. I said, that's fine. And we waited and 15 minutes goes by and my attitude was fine. And 30 minutes goes by and my attitude was fine. And 45 minutes goes by and my attitude, my attitude was still good. 45 minutes in. By the time we got to hour two though, my attitude started to get a little bad as I stood up there and it's cold and I'm starting to get stiff and, stiff and you can't really sit down in the, in the material. And so we're just standing on the side of the mountain cold. And by the time we got to the third hour, my attitude was real bad. And I started to think, you know what? I'm just going to take myself down off this mountain. I'm going to just go back down because I, I just am not sure that this worth, this weight is worth it. And I think so often in our faith walk, the challenge with waiting is we begin to wonder if the wait is worth it. I will tell you that after three hours when we finally were able to take off, it was the most exhilarating experience I have ever had. My adrenaline was so high the rest of the day. My friends who were with me, they tell me, they said, Judah, you yelled the whole rest of the day. We were at the coffee shop. The lady's like, what can I get you? I'm like, I want an espresso. It was so worth the wait. And what I want you to hear, believer, is that whatever God has you waiting for is worth it. It is worth the wait for that promise, for, for whatever he, he has promised you, whatever he has in store for you, it is worth waiting for. And what I want to remind you is that waiting keeps you safe. Waiting is a protector. Waiting shows love. So God tells them to prepare and to wait. And after three days of preparing and waiting, God comes back to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, and he says this. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And what I, what I love about this verse is I love that before God asks them to lean into their part of the covenant, he shows them what he has done. I rescued you, Israel. I saved you. I opened up the whole sea that you might walk across on dry ground. He reminds them of what he's done and who he is. He says, I am the Lord above kings, above gods, above power, above nature, above all things. I am the Lord. But he reminds them that it's personal, that he's not distant. He says, I am the Lord, your God. That, that we have a relationship here. I belong to you as you belong to me. You know me and I know you. He says, I am the Lord, your God, and what I'm calling you to do, I have called you to do 
after I have saved you, after I have brought you out. I love that ours is the God who says, I will, I will do my part before I ask you to do your part. Other faiths and other religions say, hey, you have to do right and then I'll save you. Ours is the God that says, I saved you, so do right. And God tells them, he tells them, how they are to respond. He says, this is how you participate in the covenant. And he gives them 10 words. He gives them 10 commandments. These were commandments given for the everyday Israelite. And and I want you to remember that Moses and Aaron heard these commandments directly from God in an audible voice. And while God spoke these commands to to Moses and to Israel in an audible voice, he spoke commandments that were already impressed upon the hearts of all mankind. You know what I love about the Ten Commandments? I love that they make sense. That they make sense in the real world. That they make sense outside of being written on stone tablets. And I believe that this is because God has seared them onto the consciousness of all people. I have sat with Muslims that understand that murder is wrong. I've sat with Hindus that understand that stealing is not okay. I've I've talked with atheists who understand that lying is not acceptable. And that is because these commandments are seared onto the hearts of mankind. Every culture everywhere has an understanding of a basic universal moral code grounded in these commandments. And the power of these these commandments being given by God is that it speaks to God telling Israel, you belong to me. He's answering this question, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? You're mine. He says, you're mine. You don't belong to Pharaoh. You don't belong to Moses. You don't belong to the Amalekites. You don't even belong to you. You, Did you know that? You You don't even belong to yourself. God says, your mind. And God says, being mine means being a certain way. One commentary that I read uh, described the Ten Commandments as a God-based moral code. And I think that it's so important that we remember that and that we strive with everything we have to ground our morality in God's wisdom and not our own. And I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings when I say this because I I know you think that you're a good person. I know that you think you know what's right. But in Genesis 3, something broke in humanity when our foreparents rebelled against God and it orientated us to ourselves. And so God gives this moral code in the Ten Commandments to reorient us to him and to what he thinks is right and to what he thinks is good. And guess what, believer? That may mean that what you think is right and you think is good may very well be in conflict with what God thinks is right and God thinks is good. And this is why anytime we're debating morality, anytime we get ready to say, this is what I think is right, We need to add a little addendum and say, but I know my thinking is fallible. So let me go and consult with my God in prayer. And let me go and consult with his his word and study. And let me go and consult with the community of believers and fellowship. And let me approach every moral decision with caution and and humility, understanding that even when I think I've got it, I could still be wrong. I could still be off. For the Bible says, as far as the heavens are from the earth, so his thoughts are from our thoughts. 
You know, the problem is a lot of Christians have started to think too highly of our own thoughts. You can always tell if a Christian has started to think too highly of their own thoughts when when they share these thoughts with arrogance and pride. Even if I think I'm right, even if I think I'm in alignment with what God is thinking, my voice still needs to be soft enough to hear the Holy Spirit. It's, It's real hard to hear the Holy Spirit when you're yelling. So God says, I'm going to teach you the way of morality and not as a method for earning heaven, but as a pathway toward right relationship with him and everything that he he created. Because the, the means of Christianity, all of Christianity can be summed up in Matthew 22, love God and love people. God says, this is how. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, there was a temptation to to worship, you know, whoever or whatever could get the job done, could could work in your favor. You need good weather? Call on Baal. You you need romance in the bedroom? Call on Ashtoreth. And it's funny how thousands of years can pass by and humans don't really change that much because aren't we also today tempted to worship whatever or whoever will work for us? You, 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 need, you need wealth, uh, call on, on money. You need affirmation, call on fame. You, you need things your way, call, call on control. And the children of Israel, after 400 years immersed in this culture, uh, it was a tempting thing to do. But God says, I need you to treasure me and put me first and have me only. God says, I demand to be more than just an addendum in your life. I need to be the center of the center and the only thing at the center. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And not only that, verse 4, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God says, don't make something that looks like me and worship that thing. Now, I want to be clear. This is not saying that we cannot have symbolism in our faith. In two chapters over in Exodus, God tells them to make uh, images of the, of the cherubim, right? So this isn't, isn't saying we can't have, you know, paintings of Jesus and cross necklaces. God, God is saying, don't worship the thing. I, I, in Brazil... I went to uh, Christ the Redeemer, the statue. It's one of the world wonders. I want to see all the world wonders. So I went there, and it's massive, and it's super cool. It's huge. It's really pretty. But I remember being up there and being surprised that there were people who were up there in front of the statue with tears in their eyes and, and bowing in front of the statue. And I thought, oh, God, you've, you've missed it. You've mi- I can introduce you to the actual one. You're bowing to this thing. G- God is telling Israel, a people that were surrounded by a culture that believed that like the only way that you could get to God was through images of God. He's telling them, you don't have to get use an image, you can have me. You can actually have me. You can have a relationship with me. Don't bow to that which is created. Bow to the uncreated God because God says, I'm jealous. I'm jealous for you. And this isn't that human kind of jealousy. This is love in action. God says, I love you so much, I cannot share you. 
I love you so much, I, can allow, I cannot allow you to only share a part of your heart with me. God says, I, I need all of you. Let's keep going. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So this is real simple, folks. The name of God should be honored. And it should be honored because of who it is attached to. It's, it's not because it's a magic word. Sometimes we use the name of Jesus like it's a spell, like it's an incantation. It, the name of Jesus is powerful because of who it is attached to. And he tells the Israelites, don't use my name for idle or frivolous or, or, or in, uh, insincere or inappropriate purposes. And he gives some examples later in the Bible and, and Leviticus. But essentially he says, don't use my name for basically any other reason than authentic relationship and worship. That's it. That's how you're supposed to use my name. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You, you know, this is the one that we break all the time and we never offer any correction for it. If you do something sexually immoral, you're going to get called into the pastor's office. But the Sabbath, well, we look at it like it's a suggestion. It is not. God is not asking them to observe the Sabbath. He is telling them to observe the Sabbath, and he's telling them uh, all of them, right? Too often we excuse ourselves from Sabbath rest based on who we are and what responsibilities we have. But God says, I don't, I don't care who you are or what you have to do. Son, daughter, slave, master, everybody needs to observe Sabbath. Sit down and rest in me. It is essential to how I made you. And this would have been radical in a culture where taking a day off could be the difference between life and death. See, we don't, we don't have that problem. But for them to not work on a day could mean not having food tomorrow. And so God is telling them, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust that you can rest in me and I will take care of you. Y'all, that laundry will be there tomorrow. Sit down and rest. He says rest and keep it holy, meaning keep it sacred, keep it separated from the rest of your life. So what does this look like, Pastor? What does Sabbath look like in my life? Because I got a series on Netflix I've been waiting to binge. Like, what, is, what does it mean to do Sabbath? So I want to give you some things to think about regarding Sabbath and how it fits into your life. And these things are from a, a, a variety of sources, including a, a really cool book by Pete Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And I want to give you some things to think about because the issue is that Israel would go on to try to make Sabbath a formula and become legalistic about it. It, and that's not what we want to do either. The text says that Sabbath is to serve you. So here are some things that I need you to think about with Sabbath. Your Sabbath should have four elements. Stop, rest, delight, engagement with God. I want to go through each of those individually. Your Sabbath should have some stopping. That means that there should be some ceasing of activity in your Sabbath. It should include some stillness. It should be a refrain from business as usual. So whatever you normally do, stop it. On Sabbath, there should be some stopping. 
There should also be some rest. That means that not only do you not do the things that you normally do, but you do other things that help you feel rested and recuperated and rejuvenated. How do I choose what those things are? One of my friends told me like this. She said, if you feel like you have to do it, it's no longer Sabbath. So what, as you're trying to figure out, well, what kind of activities is it okay to do? Should I do? Should I not do? If you feel like you have to do it, it's probably not Sabbath. You need to rest. It should be life-giving to you. The things that you do, it should be life-giving to you. And, and I, I want you to be clear about this. There is a difference between pleasurable and life-giving. There are some things that are pleasurable to me, i.e. binge-watching Netflix, but it's not necessarily life-giving to me. So I need you to have that distinction. And while you're making that distinction, I need you to understand number three, your Sabbath should have some delight. It should have some things that you do and you just enjoy doing them. It's just things that just feel good to you, just, just help you feel alive. Maybe it's cooking, maybe it's knitting, maybe it's sitting with good friends, maybe it's, it's listening to good music, but it should have some delight in there. And finally, your Sabbath needs to have some intentional engagement with God. That's the part that we forget. We go on whole vacations and don't talk to God one time on those vacations. There needs to be some activity that complement a close relationship with God. Maybe that's some, some time in your word, some time worshiping. Maybe it's worshiping by just doing the things that God has crafted in you to do. Sir, if you are a carpenter, maybe for you it is to go into your garage and your wood workshop and build because it's what God created you to do. It's life-giving and restful to you, and it honors God. But your Sabbath needs to have stop, rest, delight, and intentional engagement with God. And you're going to have to figure out what that looks like in your life. It may look different than the person sitting next to you. Remember, Sabbath is not about legalism. It's about the spirit of it. And so maybe for some of you, to start off, you're going to have to say, you know what? I can't do a whole day of Sabbath, so I'm going to do a half day. I'm gonna get Four hours on one day a week, I'm going to have some intentional Sabbath. But whatever you do, you need to do some sort of Sabbath. It's, it's what you need. And even if you don't think it's what you need, it's what you're told to do. Do what you're told. Observe the Sabbath. So the first four commandments are all about how this covenant shapes our relationship with God. But the next six deal with how we are to engage with people. We don't struggle so much with those first four. But these last six, I find that we struggle with. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And these commandments are all pretty self-explanatory. But they speak to the kind of community that God wants us to be, one that is predicated on trust and integrity and, and honor of the fellow person. You know, Christianity, with all of its theology and bibliology and Christology and harmatology and all the other ologies, is really quite simple. It's really about loving God and loving people. That's it. That's the whole Christian doctrine. Love God and love people. He says, honor your parents. Honor the familial relationships that you have. Y'all, there is something precious to God about the family unit. Honor your parents. Love people. He says, you shall not commit murder. 
And the obvious thing in this is like, hey, like don't stab people. It's not nice, right? But I think it's also about upholding any system that harms people. And it's also about your heart, the condition of your heart. Remember, Jesus came and added a little addendum. What did he say? He said, if you have hatred in your heart, you have infringed upon the boundary. Some of us come to church every single week, and we lift our hands and got tears in our eyes, and we're worshiping and praying with all kind of hatred in our hearts. Go put that down. Love people. He says, don't commit adultery. Again, God is showing the value of the marriage unit, of the family unit. And this isn't just about not having sex with somebody else's spouse. This is about honoring your spouse. And some of us think that we have kept up this commandment because we haven't had an affair. But I would argue that we have missed the spirit of the law because we have not always done a great job honoring our spouses, honoring the one person. This is the only person outside of Jesus who you make covenant with. You know, you don't even make covenant with your children. Listen, once those children turn 18, bow, get out. Bible says you will leave your father and mother's house and cleave to your wife. Go on, pack, son, pack. <laughs> but your spouse, you, you make covenant with your spouse. And some of us have been treating our spouses like afterthoughts. Love people. He says, don't, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Y'all know Jesus was put on a cross because of false witness. Do you know it was a lie that killed Jesus? It was a lie that started in Genesis and culminated in the Gospels. It, lying on people is not acceptable, but this law isn't just about lying on people. It's about speaking unjustly about people. It's about how we call people based on their behavior. You call that woman a whore in your heart because of who she slept with. That is bearing false witness against her because that's not her identity. That's not who God has called her to be. Watch how you talk about people. If Jesus could hang on a cross and look down in the middle of the pain at the very people who put him on that cross and intercede for mercy on their behalf, certainly we can watch how we talk about people. Amen. I want to be clear, this law is also about inappropriate silence, complicit silence. Like when we sit there and we listen to gossip, and we listen to slander about other people. Stop liking those articles on Facebook. Stop reading those articles that are calling for the execution of these, this politician or that politician, this people group or that people group. Stop liking statuses that are berating people and insulting people. Stop dishonoring people with your words. And not just the words that you say, but the words in your heart. Again, Jesus taught us that so much of his law is about the condition of the heart. You think that you have upheld this law because, well, I didn't say it. Yeah, but you thought it. And listen, nobody is perfect. My attitude gets bad a lot. Pray for me. So when you, when you do mess up and your heart gets a little wicked, like when Walmart brings in Two tellers on Saturday afternoon, knowing there's about to be 7,000 of us, and you'd be ready to cuss out everybody in the thing. Listen, when you get there, just, just repent. Just open your heart. Lord, I know you saw that thought. I know you saw that. That was nasty. I'm sorry, Lord. Help me to just do better. Love people. My, my, grandpa, my grandfather would say, 
My grandfather's not saved, but he's wise. My grandfather would say, never miss an opportunity to shut up. <laughs> Love people. He says in this text, he says, don't covet. It comes from the Hebrew word hamad, meaning desire. And, and desire itself is actually neutral. It's not good or bad. But something neutral that is misdirected can be harmful. So the eyes can look upon something and, and value it. The mind can even appreciate it. But when the will moves over to try to possess it, it becomes coveting. And, and you know what it really speaks to? It speaks to dissatisfaction with where you are. So a real good way to not be covetous, a real good way to have a boundary up against covetousness is to be, is to be generous and to be grateful. To be grateful for everything. If, I, if I'm grateful for all the things that I have over here, what, what, what do I want with you over there? He says, don't covet. So listen, the rest of this text, chapter 20 all the way through 23, the, the Lord goes on to explain to Israel who he has called them to be. He gives them all kinds of laws. He gives them laws about worship, laws about social justice, laws about how you treat a slave, somebody who is lower in social status than you. But ultimately, it boils down to a very simple principle. Love God and love people. When you get to a space where you're wondering what's right, the question is, am I loving God and am I loving people? And what we know is that when we don't live into this, this golden rule, which is what is encompassed in the Ten Commandments, that we harm ourselves, that we harm other people, that we harm churches, that we harm communities, and that we harm God. You know, when I was paragliding, I got there early and they, they gave us a little class. And the guy gave me about like 15 different things to do. Some of the things to do on the ground, some of the things to do in the air. This is how you land, all this. But there was one thing that he kept telling me over and over again. He said, when we take off, when we run down the ramp off the mountain, he said, the most important thing is that you do not sit down. He said, the harness is going to try to pull you back and make you sit down. But you've got to make sure that you stay standing because if you try to sit while we're taking off. You will bring us down. He said, you are too big. You can, I said, wait a minute, sir. I'm, I'm petite, first of all. He said, you are too big, and I cannot carry you. Whatever you do, do not sit. He told me this about 15 times. I said, sir, I get it. Don't sit. When it was time for us to go and they opened up the platform, there was one woman ahead of us, her and her instructor, and it was time for them to go, and so they take off running down the platform, and the way it works is you run to the edge of the platform, and you got to hope that by the time you get to the edge and jump off the mountain, your parachute catches, right? It, oh, it'll bring you to prayer. <laughs> she... She takes off running down the ramp, and about halfway down the ramp, I see both of them fall onto the ramp and start sliding down the ramp. And they slid literally to the very edge of the platform. He was holding on with one arm to the platform and one arm to her. And all of the staff, they jumped up and they ran down there and they had ropes and all kinds of stuff to get them because she had sat during takeoff. The one rule 
that she was not supposed to break, and she broke it. And she got, she got on my nerves because she, when, when she came back up, she didn't even realize how serious it was. She, oh, I just sat because it got hard, and I just, you know, I didn't think it would be that big of a deal. And I thought to myself, lady, you almost got yourself and your instructor killed. And I, I looked at my instructor. I said, I don't want that to happen with us. He said, me either. I got kids. <laughs> I said, sir, I won't be the reason you, they don't have a daddy. And so when it came time for us to take off, when I tell you I made sure I was standing so stiff, and t- we were all the way in the air. He was like, you can sit now. I said, huh? He said, you can sit now. I said, you sure? I- the point that I'm making is that there are a lot of pieces to Christianity. There, you can look at the Ten Commandments and be very, very overwhelmed by them, but they are really encompassed by one rule, love God and love people. And if you can just do that one rule, everything else will be okay. But if you break that one rule, you can kill people. Love God and love people. And the good thing, this is how good our God is. Ooh. Our God is so good that he would say, and even when you fail at this, even when you drop the ball, even when you cannot uphold the Ten Commandments, even when you cannot uphold the golden rule, God says, I am so good that I will still uphold my end of the covenant. And guess what? I will uphold yours. I will give you a man named Jesus born as a baby who could grow to be a boy that would astound the teachers in the temple, that would grow to be a man that would launch a ministry that would become global, a man that would hang on the cross and shed blood for you so that even when you mess up, you can still be in right relationship with him. That's who you serve. And so as an act of worship to him, let us go forth from this place loving God and loving people. Everything else will work itself out. Listen, don't be like that lady. You'll slide off the edge of the platform and probably take somebody else with you. Let me pray for you. Lord, I love you. I am grateful that you saw fit to organize our freedom, to organize our society, and to continue to impart vision for your dream for us. Lord, I also know that I struggle with every single one of these commandments, every single one of them I struggle with. I know how much I need your help, and I'm going to assume that a lot of my friends here will need your help with these too. So, Father, help us. Help us to uphold all of these and help us to have a clear focus on loving you and loving people. Lord, that is difficult. Give us the capacity to do it. And Father, I thank you that when we fail and when we fall and when we drop the ball, great God in heaven, your blood is sufficient for me. God, I thank you for it. I ask for your blessing on all of us this week. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.